Well, as I said, Romans chapter 11. Let's begin at verse uh, 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were uh, grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of our Lord. Well, I think it would be appropriate to go ahead and read ahead in verse 25 and notice there uh, that Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. We can see already from this passage prior to verse 25 that here we are dealing with deep waters. Well, let's find our place having been separated from Paul's uh, line of thought for these past couple of weeks. You know, sometimes, and this is uh, especially the case with uh, uh, Paul's letters, getting our bearings straight is really a matter of looking at the questions that Paul has laid out over the course of the letter. Now, we do know this. And we know that uh, in this Roman congregation, there's a Jewish minority. And uh, to be sure, in the city of Rome, there's a Jewish minority. We know that these individuals, Paul has told us, have very special advantages as Jews. The Old Testament scriptures are giving the law, the adoption, the glory, the worship, uh, the promises. Very special advantages indeed. But to these uh, Jews who are in the minority, there also has been the very special advantage of a very special heritage. From their race, Paul says in Romans 9, according to the flesh, comes the patriarchs and Jesus himself. But of course, the uh, Roman uh, Christians know that these very special advantages and this very special heritage set aside, many people in the Roman church have seen very few conversions among their Jewish minority. And so we can follow Paul's questions as we try and get our bearings straight for the beginning of this passage. We can go to Romans 11 verse 1. Uh, Paul says, has God rejected his people? Of course, uh, Paul goes on, he hasn't. Uh, Paul and many other Jews have been saved by grace and grace alone, and there will always be a remnant of believers uh, who are from Israel. So that's Romans 11.1, 1, but just skip down a little bit. Romans 11, verse 7, there's yet another question. Uh, Paul says, what then, or uh, what's going on? 
He says that any unsaved Israelite is unsaved because uh, God has allowed them to suffer in their unbelief. Their very special advantages and their very special heritage cannot save them from their own hardness of heart. That's what Paul introduces us to in 11 verse 7. And then a couple of weeks ago, we look at Romans 11 uh, verse 11. Yet another question. Paul says, uh, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Or we could ask it this way, is their refusal to believe somehow pointless? And Paul, again, says, by no means. And Paul has taught us that uh, even in their failure, God's plan of redemption uh, carries on. And it carries on in a strange way in that uh, Gentiles, people without Jewish advantages, without Jewish heritage, that these Gentile people are enabled by God's grace to believe. And their belief actually serves as a, as a catalyst for Jewish belief, a beacon of hope to Jews that may be spurred to be jealous for the kind of relationship that they were made to have with God. And so you see, as Christian people, uh, we uh, actually can sometimes think that we understand uh, all too well how the gospel works in the world. We're very quick. It seems, seems to be what Paul is saying to us. We're very quick to assess people as saved or unsaved and we we make a hard and fast distinction between them and, and and partly we ought to do that but in reality they're saved or unsaved because of God's plan of redemption because of God's work of the gospel and that's mysterious to us from our vantage point as Christians we're close to God and so we should know a fair bit about the power of the gospel shouldn't we we should know it experientially we should see it in the life of the church The word came to us. We heard the word. Our hearts were regenerated. And through union with Christ, we entered into that intimate fellowship with God and that fellowship with the body of Christ. We know the gospel, but we don't know everything about the gospel. We don't know everything about God's unfolding plan of redemption. We don't know everything about his working in the world And so what Paul is doing with these various uh, questions leading up to verse 16 and then uh, the statement in verse uh, 25 of Romans 11 that these things are mysterious in uh, the sight of man, what this passage this morning is doing is reminding us that while we assess people based on our knowledge of God's story of redemption... We do do that. We assess people based on uh, God's story of redemption. We have a knowledge of that story of redemption. We see it unfolding around us and we feel it uh, in our hearts. And while we assess people based on our knowledge of God's story of redemption, we are commanded in this passage to actually uh, uh, doubt that knowledge in the face of God's own sovereign application of his plan to save We're here called as Christians to trust God's own sovereign application of the gospel's power in our lives and in the lives of others. Let me put that very clearly. We know a few things about the gospel. We experience that. We know a few things about God's story of redemption. We experience that. But we don't know God's plan exhaustively. This plan to save is, after all, God's own plan. It is God's power to save. That's what Paul is reminding us of this morning. 
our, our passage gives us a view of the gospel power of salvation from two different vantage points. Uh, the vantage point of God and his unfolding of his own plan of redemption and the van- vantage point of the Christian as we experience that plan. And at the beginning and at the very end in verse 16 and then at the end of our passage in verses 22 through 24, I think they function a bit like a, like a bookend And there we're challenged to uh, pay attention to God's own perspective of his plan. The beginning, verse 16, and the very end, verses 22 through 24. Uh, Even as you look at verse 22, uh, we have this strange command that opens that verse. You can can see it in front of you. In the ESV, uh, verse 22 opens with, Note then the kindness and severity of God. And that word for note, it's a command from Paul. And what he's really saying is is he's saying, See, pay attention, take notice of. And then he goes on to describe the story of redemption from the perspective of God. And so this passage uh, is uh, uh, bookended with salvation and the plan of salvation from the perspective of God at the beginning and at the end. And then right in the middle of the passage in verses 17 through 21, Paul displays our own incorrect assessment of God's plan of redemption and how it works. And it's there in the center of the passage that Paul uh, tells us to stop being proud to stop being arrogant and to submit to God's own plan. Now, this is very important, but it's going to make the sermon feel a little uneven. Verse 16, I think, holds an awful lot for us to carry through the remainder of the verses of this passage. And so I want to park there for a while. I want to spend time. Because in verse 16, there is a principle that's put forward. And the principle is this, that the portion taken at the first represents the whole at the end. That ought to sound very simple and very complex at the same time. But uh, we will spend some time here in verse 16. You see, Paul begins with a unique, unique illustration that carries the entire force of the passage. This is why we need to spend time here. Because what Paul does in verse 16 is he throws us back in time to Numbers chapter 15. You probably know this, that Numbers, uh, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Old Testament, that Numbers is a book in the Bible that tells us about the story of Israel from the 13th month of their exodus all the way to their final preparations before entering the promised land. That's a lot. In numbers. The Hebrew title for numbers is not numbers, it's instead in the wilderness because their time in the wilderness was extended to 40 years. And so in numbers, we uh, have the uh, week uh, thir- or month 13 after the deliverance from Egypt and then 40 years forward. But there's something a bit more that's happening in Numbers. Paul goes to Numbers chapter 15 for his quote. Something dramatic happens in Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers chapter 13, the people send spies into the promised land according to God's command. They are not in possession of the promised land, but they send spies into the promised land, and the spies return, and they tell a tale of woe. 
the people become desperately afraid by what the spies have seen in the promised land. There are people there, and they're large in number, and they're powerful. And they become so desperately afraid that even though God has delivered them from the greatest power in the world, from Egypt, even though God has done that, they are terrified. And this is what we read in Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's so important that we see that turn of heart in Numbers chapter 14. That's a rejection of God if I've ever heard one. And Numbers 14 is a long chapter, but God punishes them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And at first they mourn, but but would you believe that they do this? They they, uh, begin by uh, mourning at God's punishment for the rebellion, but then they presumptuously take it upon themselves to go into the promised land, uh, to go in without the Ark of the Covenant, to go in without Moses uh, and without God, and to take the promised land for themselves and as you can imagine they're defeated handily and then numbers 15 and it begins quietly numbers 15 begins almost as a whisper to a broken people and this is where paul quotes numbers 15 is a quiet promise from god about the kind of life that they are going to lead when they finally do enter the promised land everyone is desperate They're hopeless. And Numbers 15, God is actually looking forward to when they do enter the promised land. God reaches out to them and he tenderly reminds them about his plan and that his plan is still in effect. There will indeed come a time when you will, my people, eat produce from that land that so terrifies you. You will offer your regular sacrifices, but as you do so, you'll also make voluntary offerings of grain and of flour and of oil and of wine, products of the land. And when Paul goes to Numbers 15, he's doing so for a few reasons. Again, I think this is very important for us. This, in fact, what I'm about to say to you, three reasons why Numbers 15 is so important for our passage, I'm going to mention these again. I'm actually giving you the conclusion of the sermon before the conclusion. Although, having said that, it does feel a bit like a bait and switch. I'm going to fool you into thinking the sermon's over. You're going to hear these again. But listen carefully. Why is it that Paul would go to Numbers 15? I think there's three reasons. In Numbers 15, uh, God is reaffirming his care for a battered people. They've rejected God's plan. They've attempted to take presumptuously God's plan. And yet God, he's still committed to them. He speaks to them. He reiterates his promise to them. That's the first reason Paul goes to Numbers 15. Here's the second reason. 
In Numbers 15, the people are promised that one day they will live confidently before God. They will not merely submit to him. They'll submit to him voluntarily and confidently. With gusto, they'll submit to God. They'll bring offerings above and beyond the normal sacrifice. And they'll give him the first bit, knowing that God will provide the rest. This is the second reason that these are a people who one day will confidently follow God. And here's the third reason. Numbers 15 presents in Paul's mind and then to the mind of the Roman believers a beautiful picture of the life of community in which these people will one day enjoy. A community in which Israel and strangers will live equally before God. Numbers uh, 15, verse 16, verses 14 and 16 say that if a stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. Doesn't that just sound beautiful? But it falls on the heels of a terrible disaster. Paul goes to Numbers 15 because of that contrast. These wicked, undeserving people. And yet God reaffirms his care for his people. And the people are promised that they will one day come confidently and submit before God. And then it's a beautiful picture of the community of God's people in which strangers and sojourners are right there with the people of Israel. This is a bucolic scene of living before God's reality affirmation of his care confidently giving offerings to him for that care and living aside a vast community of kin and strangers alike and the scene is so important i want us to finish later at the end of the sermon with this very scene but for now what do you think paul means with this particular quote from numbers 15 He means that the portion that's taken away at first uh, somehow represents the whole at the very end. In the future, when the people of Israel enter that promised land, God tells them that when they go to make their sacrifices, they will present alongside those sacrifices voluntary offerings of the promised land. Paul understands Moses' right that when they make a batch of dough, although the word dough, interestingly, is not in our passage... But when they make a batch of dough, uh, the the first fruit of that dough will be a portion that is given to God before the lump or the rest is used for themselves. God gets the first. And Paul and Moses say that the first fruit is actually a holy. It means that it's holy before God's eyes. You have this large lump and then the portion that is the first fruit is holy before God's eyes because God graciously accepts it as holy. Now, this is a big deal. God is willing to call something that is common dough, bread, something common like a lump of dough. God is willing to receive it as holy. And this is because he's gracious. And then uh, Paul and Moses, uh, they, they continue. The original lump, because God has called the first fruit holy, that original lump gets to be holy in some way as well. And now the lump is never uh, called directly holy. Keep in mind in this passage, the, the lump isn't what's called holy. It's the 
first fruit that's called holy. The same thing with the roots and branches. It's the roots that are called holy. And then somehow the the remaining lump and somehow the branches, they too are a part of that holy regard that God has. And here's the principle. The first fruit is holy by God's grace. But having received the first fruit as holy, the entire lump is somehow wrapped up in God's holiness. Just imagine uh, making a batch of bread and then taking a a portion of that dough and then uh, making a separate loaf of bread and then taking that loaf of bread to the priest during a normal worship service as a part of your sacrifice. And then after you have done that, taken that portion, turned it into bread, taken it and given it to the priest, you come back home and what are you greeted with? Just Just a lump of dough. And then you take that lump of dough, that original lump. It looks the same. It smells the same. Uh, The bread is going to taste exactly the same. Uh, You prepare bread and use it for your own family. But even though it looks the same, well, there's a kind of holiness that it possesses in God's eyes. The image of the root and the branches... It's a bit more complex, but the principle still needs to be adhered to. The the roots, they serve as what comes first, the the first fruits, as it were. And then the roots are holy in God's eyes. But uh, after the roots, the branches themselves, they also derive a kind of holiness because of the roots. And again, the word holy is used to describe the roots and not the branches. But there's this organic connection here that we're missing in the picture of the dough. But the principle is the same. The holiness of the first, the roots, in God's eyes carries a benefit to the second, the branches. Now, even if you're with me so far this morning, you you ought to be thinking, well, so what? (laughs) So what? I mean, how does this uh, fit the context of our passage at all? And here's how I think it does. Paul intends the Christians in Rome to understand something that is just a little bit beyond their understanding. All of the best commentators, when looking at Romans chapter 11, agree that the first fruit, his language of the first fruit, and that the roots, Paul's language of the roots, is a connection to the chronology of the story of redemption in time and space we go back to Romans chapter 9 we see Paul's pattern of looking to the Old Testament saints as an example for the life of the church in Rome he says that the Jews again going back to Romans 9 he says that the Jews have the advantage of being from the patriarchs Romans 9 5 And then uh, Paul moves on to describe uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Romans 9 has has this chronological feel to it. He goes back and he cites the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob. And then he follows that story of redemption as he makes his way through Romans 9 and 10. He follows that story of redemption through Moses, David, Hosea, Isaiah. And all the while, he's showing that there is the first fruit of God's plan. It's there sealed in in Scripture. And behind these, however, there are a people of Israel who, who follow the first fruits. And these people of Israel, some of whom are hard hearted and rebel, some of whom actually acknowledge God's plan of redemption, submit to that plan. They are believers. And this is actually evident for us today. The patriarchs, 
They've gone before us. And the true lawgiver, uh, Moses, he's gone before us. And, and the prophets, they've all gone before us. But all of them, they follow God by believing in his plan for salvation. And that plan uh, that they believe in is the plan that continues to be carried forward in the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And the patriarchs are the holy ones who precede us. Uh, Holy not because of anything in themselves, but holy because God has seen fit to accept them as holy, to use them as vehicles and instruments of his holy plan. And because they are holy in God's eyes as they believe in God's plan of redemption, as they submit to that story for their salvation, uh, we are given the opportunity to wear God's mantle and to also be holy in God's eyes. And Paul says that the portion matters. And when he says the portion matters, he's talking about us. He's talking about us. The, the holiness that God has shown by grace to the first fruits, to the patriarchs, to Moses, to the prophets is a holiness. Well, it matters to us as well because of their lives. And God's work in their lives. We have holiness. This is a remarkable thing for Paul to to teach to us. Now, there's a couple of other instances over the course of this sermon where I am going to confess that I wouldn't I wouldn't say it this way. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't use Paul's illustration. I wouldn't say it this way. But the Holy Spirit does. This is, what, this is what Paul wants us to understand, that the first fruits matter, that they're holy before God, and we also, by his grace, are holy in his sight. We're going to switch gears a little bit at verse 17, but we need to keep this principle in mind as we move forward. You know, how are we likely to see this work of salvation from our perspective as Christians And what Paul says is that we, from our position, when we view God's work of salvation, we are actually very likely to struggle against two sins. One of those sins is to be arrogant before others, and the other sin is to be proud before God. And so in 17 through 21, Paul is describing the the mystery of the story of redemption from our perspective, and he actually commands us here with regards to two sins. First, in verses 17 and 18, Paul outright commands the Roman Gentiles to not be arrogant before Jews who have proven themselves to have rejected God's plan of redemption. Paul uses uh, there the language of uh, broken off to describe those who have rejected God. Now, this is difficult to be sure until we remind ourselves that Paul has already described what is happening to a person with Jewish advantages and with Jewish heritage who actually doesn't follow Jesus. What exactly is happening in their hearts? Well, Paul has already said that they have been hardened through their own unbelief. Verse 19, he says that they were broken off because of unbelief. Again, I might not use the terminology of broken off to describe an unbelieving people, but this is the Holy Spirit's terminology for us. This unbelief makes their status of being uh, broken from the holy root or being uh, broken from the heritage and the patriarchs and prophets visible. The, The image of the roots And branches serves us here a little bit better than the image of the first fruit in dough. 
Paul warns us not to be arrogant. Why? Or on what basis does he warn a believer not to be arrogant? Well, because the life that we live as Christians is a life that we live not because of our own holiness, is it? It's a life that we live because of the God who fills us with the nourishment of the gospel that nourished the patriarchs and the prophets before us. It's actually hard for us to imagine boasting about our salvation to the unsaved. And it's especially hard to imagine boasting about our salvation to those like Jews who were uh, historically close to salvation. It's hard for us to imagine boasting about salvation to those who grew up in a Christian home and by all accounts were, were close to the dealings of God and yet not saved. Can you imagine boasting about your salvation to them? It seems very difficult to imagine. But we do, I think, boast about our holiness before the unsaved. And we certainly do that before those who we think should know better because they grew up in a Christian home. Paul reminds us to know that the holiness that we have is not the kind of holiness that comes from us. It's the work of God's Spirit placed within us so that in all things we are to thank God for our salvation and we are to thank God for our sanctification. And that's where that image of uh, the roots and branches seems to carry a special import that the image of the first fruits and the lump of dough doesn't. Paul reminds us not to be arrogant to others. But Paul also uh, reminds us or really commands us in verses 19 through 21 to not become proud before God as saved people but rather to hold God in reverence the way one would hold a king who has all authority at his disposal. Paul reminds us that our standing before God as a Christian does not give us the right to stand alongside God almost as if we are fellow gods with him. The Roman Christians are being warned about seeing in God's story of redemption his plan to save a remnant of Israel rather than Israel as a whole by virtue of their race and then using this knowledge of God's plan to consider themselves almost equal with God. Ha ha, we're saved. You aren't. But God is showing them that only a remnant of Israel would be saved And he's doing that not so that he would elevate his people any more than he already has. It is true. Some of Israel have refused to believe in Jesus. And yes, in one way it can be understood that their unbelief has made room for you and I in the kingdom. But we we must always respect God as our king. He's motivated to do his will as he pleases. He's not motivated to do his will because of you. Or because of me. Just like it's hard to imagine that someone would boast about their salvation before others. It's also hard to imagine uh, that we would uh, be proud before God and refuse to revere him. Because of our special place being connected into that uh, branch. So it may be hard to imagine boasting about salvation to others. But I do think it's a little less hard to imagine speaking to God in a way that shows our lack of reverence for his plan of salvation. I can think of a couple of examples of this. 
being proud before God rather than revering him for his plan of salvation of which we are a very small part. One way we uh, replace uh, our fear of God, our reverence of God with arrogance is when we think about the very smallness of our prayer life. I hope to touch a nerve here. Are we so proud before God that we think we only need to call upon him if there's an emergency, if there's something in particular? And I wonder if a waning prayer life is an expression of our arrogance before God, thinking that we are partners with him. We do 80% of the work and he's only needed to be called in for the 20% which we cannot cover at all times. A waning prayer life is something to be noticed by a believer and something to be corrected. It's not showing a proper reverence to the one who saves. I also think of our lack of holiness before our king. If he is our king, the details of our lives matter to him and our life decisions, they're they're just not optional matters. I know that talking about holiness is difficult, particularly for Presbyterians, and we want to be so very careful to avoid uh, the notion of legalism. But reverence to the king, fear before the king means living before him in a way that is more pleasing to him. Than it is to me. What about me as a Christian belongs to me? Well, nothing. The holiness before our King flows from the Holy Spirit within us, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that sustains us. But this holiness that is wrought by the indwelling Holy Spirit is guided by our, our fear and our reverence before God. And and I'll be honest, I don't much care for Paul's phrase in verse 21. For if God did not spare the the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Mm. I encourage people in their holy walk all the time. But I don't use language like that. And perhaps, perhaps maybe I should. It's here in Scripture. The Bible tells us um, over and over again, and Paul in this letter has told us over and over again that believers cannot lose their salvation, that God's assurances are all around us in the fellowship of the church, but also the assurance that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Uh, Jesus knows who are his own. And Paul has said in Romans 5 and in Romans 8 that we are a people who as Christians will never lose our salvation. But that same spirit that converts and sanctifies and assures is the same spirit that gives Paul these words. And I cannot help but think that verse 21 is meant to spur the Romans and to spur us to remember who our king is and that the life we live, we live because of his victory and not ours. The middle section of this passage offers two stern, sharp warnings to not, be, not become arrogant before others, boasting about the salvation we have and the salvation they lack, and to not be arrogant before God, refusing to approach him with fear and reverence and instead taking him lightly. And Paul brings us to conclusion beginning at verse 22. 
And here we return to where we began in verse 16. Verse 16 being a picture of the story of redemption from God's point of view. Captured in the image of the first fruits and the roots and branches. And then here at the end uh, we have again a picture of the story of redemption from God's point of view. The admonitions in verses 17 through 21 to not be proud before others and to approach God with fear and reverence are Paul's way of showing us God's story of redemption from our own perspective. We struggle with those sins. But here in verse 22, Paul commands us to take notice, to pay attention, to see how it is that God does work. And the two things that we are to see about God is that God has kindness and that God has severity. I I think that 22 is meant to give us a small glimpse into the decision-making chamber of God. There are indeed deep waters here. In verse 22, Paul is almost inviting us to crouch on our knees and to uh, gaze through the very crack of the door that goes into the courtroom of God's counsel where he makes decisions. And we get that peek into this special room, a room uh, in which uh, important people gather to make decisions and the important people are the persons of the Trinity working the salvation of God's people. This is the mind of God, as it were. Because I believe this is what Paul is doing. There's room here in these verses, verses 22 through 24, for confusion as Paul leads us to verse 25, uh, which is the reference to mysteries. Here in verses 22 through 24, I think we need to carry before us uh, Paul's warning in verse 25 to not be wise in our own sight. Verses 22 through 24 need that reminder. Rather than being wise in our own sight, Paul says, pay attention to the decision-making chamber of the one who wrote the story of redemption and the one who brings that story of redemption to pass, indeed is bringing that story of redemption to pass. Everything in verses 22 through 24 hinge on the way we've already been told that the gospel works. When we preach the gospel, we have an opportunity to be used by God and that his power is what gives the gospel its working power. When we see God's power, we are seeing nothing short of a wild shoot before our eyes that's being grafted into the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a decision. It is an engrafting by the king. This is kindness, isn't it? But the, the kindness is the kindness in which those who are undeserving hear the gospel. And as their hearts are regenerated, they say yes to the gospel. God's kindness is his power to save. It's the undeserved grace to those who definitely deserve nothing but hell. And then similarly, when a person refuses to follow Christ, this is not a small matter. If not checked, to refuse to believe in Christ Jesus is to taste the severity of God in small bits The severity of God who has the right to judge the guiltiness for its guilt. And the severity of God that will one day be seen in full by all those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 22, the threat that you too will be cut off. What are we to do with that? 
on the surface, I, I think in, in my mind it can mean only one thing, that uh, as I know that God's word has taught us that God will never separate himself from those who are saved, who repent and who believe in the Son of God. He'll never leave them or forsake them. But verse 22 seems to, seems to mean uh, that there uh, is a mixed community in the church at Rome. Is it possible that there are non-believers that are present during Lord's Day worship in Rome and that verse 22, you too will be cut off is a, is a stark admonition to them? The same is true perhaps here. There are non-believers uh, with us this very morning and they ought to hear in verse 22 that they are being told uh, not to think that they can deny Jesus until the very end. And at the very end of their life, they can, in a uh, nice, uh, elegant, safe movement, at the very end of their life, uh, turn off God's severity because he'll receive them as a follower of Jesus in the end. And that's the warning if you're here this morning and you refuse to place your trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, if you refuse to repent and understand that that work on the cross is a work that you actually deserve, dying before God, being punished before God, if you refuse to see that, I wonder if verse 22, I wonder if Paul has it there to remind you of the severity of God. You cannot fake your devotion to Jesus. His severity is because of his hatred of sin. The only way that God's severity is averted, Paul has told us, the only way that severity is averted is if we trust in the one who drank up that very severity upon his cross, Jesus Christ, uh, the one who assumed for himself the punishment of the church that the church might have life. Verse 22, when Paul says, provided that you continue in his kindness, that makes verse 22 even trickier, doesn't it? Is this still a threat to unbelievers? And many of the reformers looked at verse 22 and read, provided that you continue in his kindness as uh, not a threat to those who are not believers, but as an admonition to those who are believers, a reminder to believers that they are called to walk in faith before God. He is kind, but he's severe, and he has the right to, he has the right to exact holiness from you. Mm, verse 22 is very difficult. But I want us to understand the thrust of verses 22 through 24. Paul may be addressing the non-believers in the church at Rome. And I do believe that there are non-believers worshiping with us each and every Sunday morning. But he may also uh, be reminding us as Christians uh, that the, the salvation that we have is a salvation that we have because the severe God exacted a painful price upon the back of our Lord and Savior. You know, Paul, I think, is wrapping up this section with this main thrust of a reminder. It's the reminder that Jonah received as he was in that, the belly of that great fish drifting to the bottom of the ocean. And God reminds him salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one and the only one who has the power to save 
And Paul wants this to be heard by not only arrogant and prideful Christians and not only Jews who continue in your unbelief, but also you Gentiles who have given yourself many reasons to not rest in the work of Jesus Christ and to assume that that cross is meant for someone else, not you. You see, this is a passage in which uh, I believe Christians are summarily reminded of who owns salvation before you think that people are saved by your proclamation of the gospel, think again. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. And so this passage reminds the church that while we uh, assess people based upon our own knowledge of God's story of redemption, we need to put that assessment in perspective. We're we're commanded uh, to actually lay that assessment of where people are, saved and unsaved, at the feet of Jesus Christ at his cross. And we're to trust God's own sovereign application of the gospel's power, both in our lives, but also in the lives of others. I think there's some rich application here, but I want to take us back to Numbers chapter 15. That glorious scene in which God reaffirms his care for people who are rebellious. And they know that rebelliousness. They've taken matters into their own hands, assumed that they know God's path towards redemption. I think that we can do this as Christians. We assume that we know exactly what God is doing in the expansion of the church as the gospel goes forth. We assume if our church is shrinking, it's shrinking because God's gospel somehow is not working. And at the same time, if our church is growing as a congregation, we're quick to assume that it's growing as a congregation because of things that we have done. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that scene in Numbers 15 is such a beautiful picture of the humble people being taught that we have nothing but the care and regard that God gives to us. We have nothing but his grace. Numbers 15 reminds the people of that. Numbers 15 also encourages people to live confidently before God because we are loved by God, because God himself has done all things necessary that we would be covered with the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. We actually can confidently follow this God. We can give to him the first fruits knowing that he is our great provider. He knows how to care for us. Numbers 15 is this impassioned picture of a confident people before God. And that's what we need to hear this morning. If salvation belongs to him, and if salvation is all by grace, and if I am truly as bad a rebel as I am, and yet he still loves me, how can I not confidently give all that I am to this good king? And finally this. It ought not to be missed that Paul uses a passage in Scripture in which a broken people taste something very unique. They taste the embracement of others. They taste God's grace, but as God has humbled them and reminded them of their wickedness and their sin and says, I am still with you, God says, and I'm with them too. And I'm with them too. The sojourners and the strangers are equal alongside of you before me. This is is what Paul wants the Roman Christians to understand. 
that God's story, it, it goes forward and it goes forward with weight and power and it will go to its end. It will never be stopped. What we need to understand is that God is the one who has loved those who don't deserve that love. And God is the one who has fashioned before himself a body such as this body here. A people who are saved from a variety of different circumstances. Some people growing up in the church. Some people have been Christians for a matter of months or perhaps weeks. And yet here we are together all equal, not because of our own measurement of ourselves, but equal because before God's eyes we are sinners deserving death, but instead we have been covered by His holiness. And we love one another because of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in one another's lives. And we are grateful for this powerful move of God's gospel, the story of redemption being unfolded before our very eyes, and the blessing, the first fruits of the patriarchs and the prophets being a blessing that we experience today. We believe, we follow, we trust, we submit to the very same King. What more is there for us to know? Salvation is not ours. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are wise. You are powerful. You are knowledgeable. You know what you are doing. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would continue in your grace to unfold before our eyes the mysterious working of your story of redemption. That filthy, rebellious, wicked sinners have a place before you, regardless of their background, regardless of their story. You, Heavenly Father, have unfolded us into your own story by your grace. And we thank you for your wisdom for your knowledge, for your power in your story of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.